You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we wrap up our series on Pierre Savignon de Braza and the exploration of Central Africa. I hope you've enjoyed this series. It is unique in that many people have not heard about Braza, and even more importantly, it is about a man who eschews many of the traditional explorer tropes. He was not obsessed with wealth and glory, and he believed in building productive relationships with the natives that he encountered. And he very much seems to have cared for these lands and the people, which is a rarity in our podcast, and that is refreshing. Now before we start, I want to give a big thanks to everyone who joined our Patreon program. By supporting the show financially, the show's patrons get a bunch of fun benefits, including ad-free episodes, bonus mini-episodes, and podcast Q&As. And those who have joined our program at the Trailblazer tier and above get a special shout-out in the podcast. That means Chris, Philip, and Eileen. To the program's first three Trailblazers, thank you very much. A special nod goes to Eileen from Athlon, Ireland, which, by the way, I have actually visited. Eileen was the first person to sign up for our Trailblazer tier, which was really cool for me when it happened. So Chris, Philip, and Eileen, thank you. And to all our patrons, I appreciate your support. If you are interested in helping out the show financially, go to explorerspodcast.com and click over to our Patreon website for more information. With that done, let us get on with our show, the conclusion of Pierre Savignon de Braza and the exploration of Central Africa. Last time, we finished up as 1882 came to a close. Braza had returned from Africa, and his treaty with the Bateki chief, Makoko, had been voted into law by the French legislature. The vote effectively put the lands north of the Congo River under the protection of France. But Braza knew that there was still a lot to be done. The outposts and relationships he had established in Africa were tenuous. He knew that he needed to return if he was to solidify and advance his plans for the region. Also, Braza knew that he needed to return if he was to counter the advances of Leopold II, the king of Belgium, who had his eyes on the entire Congo Basin. So, today's episode will be broken down as follows. 1. We will cover the return of Braza to Africa for another mission. 2. We will do an overview of Braza's time as the chief administrator of French Africa. 3. We will take a look at Braza's return to Africa in 1905 as he heads an investigation into allegations of abuses against the native people of the region. And 4. We will wrap up by discussing the legacy of Braza. And that is it, so let's get going. So, it was 1883 and Braza was a celebrity in France. Braza cigarettes and other products were everywhere. Men were growing and cutting their beards just like Braza and there were dinner parties and galas held in his honor. France toasted his humane approach to exploration and colonization, calling him the peaceful conqueror and the barefoot conqueror. 
The latter is a reference to the fact that he often went without footwear while in Africa. So, with the ratification of the treaty with King Makoko, it was quickly decided that Braza had to go back for a third mission. This would be his most ambitious yet. The plan was to reinforce existing settlements, build new outposts, sign more accords with the local chiefs, and establish free trade routes along the Ogoe and the Niari-Koyu river systems. The expedition would consist of more than 200 men, including 48 Europeans, 25 Algerian riflemen, and 130 Senegalese marines. Amongst the men would be Dr. Noah Ballet, who was already in Africa, Sergeant Malamine Kamara, and Engineer Joseph Michaud. Braz's brother, Giacomo, or Jacques as he was known to the French, was also part of the expedition as a naturalist. The endeavor was a massive undertaking, 200 men, 350 tons of supplies, and logistics far beyond what Braza had ever imagined. He often found himself overwhelmed by the paperwork. To help with all the administrative duties, Braza would hire Charles de Chavon as his personal secretary. This was a great move, as Chavon, who had a law degree and was an army reserve officer, would go on to become Braza's most trusted advisor and friend. Braza would depart from Bordeaux on March 21, 1883. Before leaving, he was the guest of honor at a banquet held by the local Geographic Society. To them, he gave a speech and concluded by saying, quote, I need not speak of the past, but of the future. Our work now extends far beyond the efforts of a single man. It is now the work of France. End quote. It was Braza's acknowledgement that this latest mission was not just about him anymore. It was about building something greater than discoveries and trade routes and treaties. It was about constructing a humane and mutually beneficial system in concert with the people of Africa, a system that would endure over time and be a model for the world to see and mimic. Braza would reach Senegal in early April, where he picked up his Marines as well as Sergeant Malamine Camara. Braza was thrilled to have the man back in his corner, as Malamine had been instrumental in the success of his previous expedition. From Senegal, the expedition would head down the coast of Africa and reach Libreville on April 22nd. Here, Braza would immediately run into two problems. First, as always in the colonial service, communication and cooperation between officials was often lacking. Orders from Paris were ignored, or frankly impossible to accomplish. The bureaucracy found in France, which was rigid and predictable, was often non-existent in Africa. Things were, frankly, much more fluid and subject to the whim of people and events. Thus, when Braza arrived, he found that there were no barracks set aside for his men. Also, there were no storage facilities available to house the expedition supplies. And this would lead to the second problem, theft. Without proper storage, all the expedition's gear just sat out in the open, making it easy target for thieves. It all drove Braza crazy. The pettiness and greed and stupidity he encountered all too often undermined everything he wanted to accomplish. On the happier side of things, Braza was encouraged by the warm welcome he received from the local population. They had not forgotten the father of slaves, and their appreciation for him was only further cemented by Braza's brother, Jacques. The locals would cheer the young man when he shed his boots and went barefoot. Now, Braza's new expedition had many facets, so it won't just be him and his men hopping into canoes and heading up river. Example, the French Navy and some troops would go to the important Atlantic seaport of Point Noir and chase off Belgian mercenaries who had their eyes on the little settlement. Point Noir was not far from the mouth of the Koyu River and was essential to maintaining any sort of trade route down the Niari-Koyu River system. Braza would head up the Ogawe River to Lamborini, which was roughly 100 miles inland. He and some of his men would continue up the Ogawe, but others would go establish outposts or explore unknown territories, seeking to make contact with the local chiefs. So like I said, this was a much larger and expansive enterprise. Braza would reach Franceville in late July, and he would be disappointed at what he found. The man he had left in charge, Lieutenant Louis Mison, had done a poor job. 
He had antagonized the Babangi on the Alima River, and the locals around Franceville hated the guy. Again, Brazo would find himself forced to clean up the messes of others. Now, I am not going to go through all the exact details of Brazo's third mission, as it really starts to veer into the realm of administration rather than exploration. However, I do want to highlight a few items. One major thing Braz and his team accomplished was to establish a new outpost on the Alima River and in the process make peace with the Babangi. Much of that credit goes to Dr. Ballet. The first riverboats would go into operation on the Alima in October. The backbone of the Enterprise were these huge dugout canoes, some large enough to carry eight tons of merchandise. This was a big deal, as the trade network that Braza had envisioned was officially underway. Goods could come down the Congo, up the Alima, then overland to the Ogoe, and down to the coast, and vice versa. A new settlement, Dila, was set up on the Alima to facilitate the new trade route. Another highlight of Braza's third mission was the visit to the Pateki chief, Makoko, in the spring of 1844. Braza took a convoy of riverboats down the Alima to the Congo in the process, putting on a good show for everyone to see. The Bateki people cheered and sang songs to Braza on his arrival, while the French explorer and the African chief greeted each other warmly, like old friends who had not seen each other in a long time. Gifts would be exchanged, with Braza presenting to Makoko a ratified copy of the treaty they had signed. This was all important as the meeting solidified the relationship between France and the Bateki. So, this was all pretty good. However, the specter of King Leopold and Henry Morton Stanley hung over all that Braza did. The Belgian king worked hard to undermine Braza and his efforts both in Europe and in Africa. Example, to bring into question the treaty between France and the Bateki, rumors were started that Braza, and even Makoko, had died. Also, Stanley's aggressive and determined work along the Congo had paid off. He had built his road along the river, bypassing the rapids of Livingston Falls, and there was talk of a railroad. Stanley had also brought steamship parts to the upper Congo, allowing him to float the first steamships on the Great River, something Braza had hoped to do in his previous expedition. Stanley also secured many of the best spots on the river to build outposts. The truth is, Braza's deliberate, negotiated style often meant that aggressive men like Stanley could exploit a situation more quickly and effectively. So, with all of this going on, it was clear to the world that the scramble for Africa needed to be brought under control. No one wanted a war over the continent. Thus, in November of 1884, the West Africa Conference was held in Berlin. It was attended by 13 European nations and the United States. No al-Ballet would represent France. There were no African representatives in attendance. The gathering was hosted by Otto von Bismarck, who spoke of bringing the three seas to Africa, commerce, Christianity, and civilization. The West Africa Conference concluded on February 25, 1885, with the signing of the General Act of Berlin. It guaranteed free trade on the Congo and Niger rivers and essentially set up boundaries within Africa. The French Congo was now an official political entity, as was Leopold's Congo Free State. And with that, the exploitation of Africa would soon kick into high gear. Not long after the conference, Braza would be called back to France, completing his third mission. Things had been mostly successful. Twenty new outposts had been established. Brazzaville, on the Congo River, was flourishing. Braza and his people had mapped rivers, established roads, and cataloged hundreds of new plants and animals and fish. All of this had helped France acquire 400,000 square miles of territory. However, things had not been without difficulties. Two more years in Africa had been hard on Braza physically, as well as on many of his friends and advisors. Sergeant Malamine Kamara had been forced to return to Senegal with a bladder infection, and other men had grown sick and returned to Europe. Still others had not survived the harsh climate, dying from malaria, dysentery, and sleeping sickness. And regarding Braza, he struggled at times as an administrator. It just wasn't his thing. 
He thrived being in the field and interacting with others. Thus, he was criticized by some, including his own friends and allies, for his inconsistent decision-making. Still, things had been pretty good. Braz and his team had accomplished a great deal and had done so peaceably and as partners with the African people. Braza returned to France on November 10, 1885. He would take some time to recover his health, but in short order, the future of French colonial interests became a high priority to many. Now, it is important to understand this wasn't just about Braza. It was about a philosophy of exploration and colonization. And the truth is, Braza's way was the hard way. It took time, it took patience, it took understanding, and it took money. In 1885, commerce on the Ogilvy had generated 14 million francs in revenue seven times what it had generated 10 to 15 years earlier. However, the cost to develop and maintain the colony exceeded that figure. People were saying, hey, this peaceful conqueror stuff is great, but when is it going to turn a profit? Thus, if Braza was going to keep his vision alive, he would have to fight for it. Unfortunately, many of his supporters within the government were no longer in power. Thus, Braza would take his case to the people and the press. It was an arena that he knew really, really well. He was as dashing and charming as ever. He went to dinner parties and galas, spoke at intellectual and scientific gatherings, all the time promoting his peaceful approach to colonization. This would culminate in a massive gathering on January 21, 1886. Before 5,000 people, Braza laid out his proposal for Central Africa to the people and the French government. What he proposed was heavy on economics, but he stressed that it could be done in a humane and peaceful fashion. It was a cultural and scientific and social partnership designed to fight slavery, and to help make both Africa and France prosper. During his speech, Braza noted that Africa had claimed too many of his friends and colleagues in this struggle, and he begged people not to let 10 years of hard-won victories be thrown away for quick profits. He asked to go back to Africa, saying, quote, It will be the honor of my life if France adopts my plan as its own. End quote. The people and the press loved it. Braza had appealed to their better natures and won. Soon there would be calls for him to be appointed as the governor of French Africa. Despite resistance in many quarters, Braza would be granted a fourth mission to Africa in April of 1886. He was to develop and nurture France's peaceful influence on the region and seek out commercial relations with previously unknown areas. Braza was offered the title of governor of the Central African French colonies, but he rejected it, instead settling on general commissioner. It is a job and title that he will hold for over a decade. Now, I am not going to go through 10-plus years of Braza's life as a colonial administrator, but I do want to give you some of the highlights and lowlights. And just as important, I want to detail how things were developing in the Congo Free State, Leopold's playground, as it is a harbinger of what is to come in the French Congo. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, it was 1886, and the 34-year-old Braza was the big man in French Africa, which was the area around Gabon in the Congo. Braza understood that one of his primary duties would be to develop economic opportunities for the colonies. Without producing value from Africa, 
his way of doing things would be in danger. And it would not be easy. He needed European investors and partners, and many were skeptical of what he proposed. Thus, Braza would, especially in the next few years, spend a lot of time in Europe trying to drum up support. He would send others to run things in Africa, including his longtime colleagues, Noel Ballet and Charles de Chaban. When Braza finally got to Africa in 1887, he would find a whole lot of new issues. First, Braza had accomplished so much because of his own personal negotiations with the local chiefs. But he could not be everywhere and address every issue in person. And over time, the local chiefs he had established relationships with would sometimes die or be usurped. Remember, it had been more than a decade since Braza had first ventured up the Ogoe. Things were changing, and the personal touch that Braza had used so successfully was bound to fade over time. Second, the influence exerted by aggressive agents from Leopold's colony cannot be underestimated. They stoked tribal rivalries and sought to turn Braza's allies against him and France. And the bribery of French officials was always a major headache. Third, another major issue was Braza's own people. As we noted, this was not just about Braza and his close-knit circle of comrades. It was about dozens of outposts and trade routes, and the men sent to oversee these places did not always have the patience or compassion or resources to successfully implement Braza's ideas. And to be honest, many did not want to implement Braza's ideas. Many Frenchmen saw the Africans as nothing more than savages, who should be thankful for the Europeans bringing civilization to their world. They thought it ridiculous that Africans would be treated as equals in any shape or form. It made for, at times, an atmosphere of mistrust and abuse. A fourth issue was Braza himself. As we saw on his last mission, he was not a great administrator. His leadership could be inconsistent and frustrating. His personal negotiating style often meant that he would disappear to one part of the jungle for months at a time, leaving his colleagues twisting in the wind if they had questions or needed assistance. This frustrated everyone, including his supporters. In fact, one of his oldest colleagues, Dr. Noah Ballet, who was the lieutenant governor of Gabon, requested a transfer due to disagreements with Braza over the management of the colony. And we cannot forget about money. Braza was just not that good at the financial side of running a colonial operation. In fact, he would often have to dip into his own family fortune to make ends meet. Now, all that said, Braza would be beloved as ever by the native people. They called him Le Grand Commandant, the Great Commander. In the tribal dialects, this would come out as Rakamambo. He was the father of slaves, the man who walked without boots or shoes, the man who shared their food and dancing and stories. He had become almost mythical in nature. In reality, Braza probably represented a little bit of hope and decency in a rapidly changing world, a chance at a fair and safe future, especially when stories, bad stories, began to circulate about what was going on on the other side of the Congo River. And when we say on the other side of the Congo, we are talking about King Leopold's Congo Free State, or the other name for the territory was the Independent State of the Congo. And now is a good time to pivot to that territory, which we should note was not free, nor was it independent. This was Leopold's colony, and I mean that literally. The Congo Free State was not a colony of Belgium. It was entirely owned by King Leopold. It was his private property. We are talking about 900,000 square miles of land and 20 to 30 million people. And what was happening there was not good, and it was only getting worse. Now, the first thing I want to note about the Congo was that Henry Morton Stanley was being phased out. The man had done the dirty work of exploring and building, and now it was time to exploit, and he was not needed anymore. Second thing was that Leopold had invested a lot of money in the Congo. A lot. He had creditors, and according to the terms of the Berlin Act, if he could not make enough money from the Congo Free State, he would actually be forced to get rid of it. This meant that Leopold needed to monetize the colony, and quickly. 
This will lead to a brutal and systematic exploitation of the area. What Leopold wanted was ivory and rubber. The value of rubber skyrocketed after the invention of the inflatable tube in the late 1880s, which was essential to the growth of the bicycle and soon automobile industries. To maximize profits, Leopold would establish concessionary companies. These were, essentially, private individuals and organizations who were granted exclusive rights to control and exploit a designated region. These companies had the ability to levy taxes, establish laws, operate a police force, and pretty much whatever they wanted, and what they wanted would turn more brutal and more repressive with each passing year. I am not going to dwell too much on this stuff, but I think it's important to understand what happened at this time. The concessionary companies would typically force the natives to pay a tax, and the only thing you could pay it with was usually rubber or ivory. If a village protested or resisted, armed mercenaries would show up, rape, kill, and burn. Whole villages would be wiped out. Another common tactic was to take the women and children hostage until the men went and got enough rubber and ivory to fulfill their quota. If a village did not meet its quota of rubber, the same thing could happen. Whippings, executions, rapes, murders. It was common for the hands of villagers to be hacked off to prove to the bosses that the natives had been punished for not reaching their goals. In fact, there were instances where villages would, knowing they could not reach the rubber quota, go and attack a neighboring village to gather hands to pay their fine. It was a twisted and brutal system designed to generate a maximum return in as short a time as possible. Author Joseph Conrad would write the famous story Heart of Darkness based on his experiences in the Congo Free State in 1890. He would call this time, quote, the vilest scramble for loot that ever disfigured the history of human conscious and geographical exploration, end quote. So with Leopold's Congo Free State descending into a cesspool of brutality and greed, Braza would fight to make the French Congo a viable and profitable colonial entity, all the while treating the natives with respect and decency. As we noted, it was not easy. During Braza's time, he would always be dealing with excursions and disputes with not just Leopold's Belgians, but with the Germans and even the British. Each side would use mercenaries and rival tribes to try and gain advantage over the other. Braza and his officers would have to conduct military operations to beat back these threats. And I want to note that this was not just about other nations being aggressive. France was not innocent. The French pushed into Cameroon and Chad, sometimes putting them into conflict with others, especially the Germans. So in 1894, Braza, now 42 years old, would find himself, to be honest, pretty downhearted about how things were going in Africa. Investment and development was slow to come to the French colonies, and there were more and more calls for Braza and his ideas on colonization to step aside. There was money to be made in Africa, but not with Braza running the show. It was then that, in September of that year, Braza would almost die when a steamship he was on crashed and sank in the Sangha River, killing ten men. Braza would manage to swim to safety, but he would find himself physically and mentally exhausted. Thus, he would go to Algiers and then to France to recover his health. It was here that Braza would be reintroduced to Countess Thérèse de Chambreux, a 34-year-old woman of noble birth who was the great-great-granddaughter of the Marquis de Lafayette, the hero of the American and French revolutions. The two had known each other for years, but now entered into a relationship. They would get married in August of 1895. At this point, Braza really just needed to stay away from Africa for the sake of his health, but the following year he would return once again, this time with his bride. It did not help that Charles de Chavon, his friend and one of the colony's best administrators, would retire due to health reasons. Braza's last couple of years as the Grand Commander were not good ones. Money was always short, and pressures were building to make the colonies more profitable. 
and it was also during this time that Braza's efforts would be hobbled by the Marchand mission. This enterprise was completely independent of Braza, but it began in Libreville. It entailed Captain Jean-Baptiste Marchand and 150 men marching across the continent and securing some lands around the Nile in what is now modern-day South Sudan. The result was pretty much a disaster. Marchand, like most military men, disliked Braza and his policies. Thus, he ignored them and did whatever he wanted. He marched across the Congo, conscripting porters by the thousands, killing and looting and taking whatever he wanted. And Braza didn't have the authority to do anything about it. It poisoned a lot of the goodwill that Braza had built up over the previous two decades. By the way, the end result of the Marchand mission was a humiliation for France. The British would send 1,500 men to confront Marchand, who was forced to withdraw, ceding the region to England. But the damage was done. The Marchand mission had cost France a fortune, and they had nothing to show for it. Plus, it had angered all sorts of people in Central Africa. To top it off, Marchand blamed Braza for many of his problems. With money lacking and his health failing, Braza's enemies could smell blood in the water. They attacked him at home and abroad. The politicians began to abandon him, and journalists, many in the pay of Leopold, began to criticize Braza and call for his ouster. Many people, and not just politicians and journalists, wondered if the money and lives spent in Africa was worth it. The Africans were painted as lazy and ungrateful savages. One newspaper said that Braza was practicing philanthropy, not colonization. Braza returned to France in April of 1897, before heading to Algiers with his wife in January of 1898. Shortly thereafter, Braza would be removed from his post in the French Congo. The government didn't even have the decency to notify him of the decision, and Braza would read about it in the newspaper. The dismissal, which no doubt stung, was probably the best thing for Braza. Now that he was free of all the responsibilities of Africa, his mental and physical health quickly improved, and it was not long before he and his wife would welcome the first of four children. So, with Braza out of Africa for the first time in more than two decades, he rejected the idea of going into politics, and instead retired to Algiers, a city he loved. The weather reminded him of his youth in Italy, and the climate was better for his health. In 1903, Braza would be granted 10,000 francs in honor of his service to France. It was called National Compensation, and had last been given in 1874 to the renowned French scientist Louis Pasteur. However, the same year would be tragic for Braza when his four-year-old son, Jacques, died of appendicitis. In retirement, Braza would keep tabs on things in the Congo as best as possible, but conditions there would get worse each year. In 1899, the concessionary system was legalized in the French Congo, and it was divided into 42 territories. This meant that atrocities seen in Leopold's Congo were soon rearing their ugly heads in the French Congo. In one case, 68 women and children were locked into a building, to force their men to go harvest rubber. Sixty-six of them would die, mostly from asphyxiation. In another case, two French civil servants blew up a native in front of his family. The men never denied the charges and would say they didn't regret what happened as it, quote, kept the blacks from making trouble, end quote. The two men, by the way, would ultimately be convicted of various crimes and sentenced to five years of hard labor, but they would be freed after only two years. The local white population, however, was outraged by the sentences. In their eyes, the blacks were all lazy troublemakers, and any punishment, even murder, was justified. But these kinds of abuses in the Congo could not be hidden forever. Stories would get out. A blistering report from British Consul Roger Casement in 1904 was especially damning. Thus, in the wake of all these, and other incidents, which are too numerous to mention, a commission would be established by the French government, and Braza would be targeted as the man to lead it. He would bring gravitas and respectability to the investigation. 
Now, none of Braz's family or friends wanted him to take the job. He was 52 years old and had lingering health issues. The stress and African climate, they argued, would be terrible for him. But the call of Africa was too strong for Braza. He would accept the job. He said that he would surrender all his remaining strength to prevent the moral ruin of the colony. Now, Braza's enemies were not thrilled at his appointment. They were now making money in French Africa, and they didn't want anyone to jeopardize that. However, they all knew that Braza was in poor health, and they hoped that that would limit his investigation. From the start, Braza would be stonewalled by many in the government. They refused to deliver him documents, or said that they were lost or didn't exist. At the Ministry of Colonies, they were so hostile to him, Braza would only enter the building if he had a companion to ensure that he had a witness as to what happened. Braza's investigation would be limited to six months, meaning a month to reach Africa, four months to do his digging, and then a month home. It was not a lot of time. He did, however, have a quality staff of 14 men, including doctors, writers, educators, and administrators. Before departing, Braza's friends, including Charles de Chavon, tried to get him to reconsider. His age and poor health aside, he had a wife and three children under the age of five to look after. Surely someone else could take the job. But Braza would have none of it. This was the Congo. He was convinced it was his duty to protect it. Thus, he would send his children to Rome to stay with family, and with his wife at his side, he would head back to Africa for a final time. Braza and the commission arrived in Libreville on April 29, 1905. It was a very different scene than 30 years before. Braza's hair was gray, and he moved slowly, and he stooped over. Still, the natives turned out in droves at the arrival of Rocamambo. They sang and cheered. Some of those who came out to greet him included former slaves who Braza had freed many years before. They all celebrated the return of the great commandant. Braza would take a steamer up the Ogoway, with the people and chiefs coming out to greet the legendary father of slaves at each stop. However, they would share with him their sorrows, detailing the whippings, rapes, killings, and crippling taxes. It was disheartening for Braza to hear such a thing. And Braza was shocked to see that the Ogoe Valley, so vibrant when he had departed, was nearly deserted. People had fled into the jungles to escape forced labor, or they had died due to starvation and disease. By the way, one of the great tragedies of this whole situation was that the concessionary companies demanded payment only in rubber and ivory, meaning crops were not being planted. Now there were abandoned fields and starvation was commonplace. As for Braza's investigation, officials did all they could to hide their abuses. Witnesses would disappear, documents would go missing, roads would get blocked. It was sad and pathetic. But not everything could be done to thwart Braza and his staff. At one village, they found men and women chained together, and they inadvertently discovered a hostage camp where women and children were locked away until the men of the village collected their share of rubber. It was all rather crushing considering one of the primary goals of Braza had been to end slavery in Africa. Yet here, in the 20th century, the native peoples were still slaves, just using a different term, such as bonded laborers. During the time in Africa, Braza would go up the Congo River and take a train from Matadi, which is at the bottom of Livingston Falls, to Leopoldville, which was the Belgian settlement opposite Brazzaville. Ten years earlier, the same trip would have taken months, yet now it only took a day. The railroad, which had opened in 1898, helped accelerate the exploitation of the African interior, and it made the trade routes established by Braza nearly obsolete. In the end, Braza and his team traveled 500 miles on horseback through blistering suns and torrential downpours to document the abuses, and what they uncovered appalled them. They found countless incidents of rape, murder, starvation, and forced slavery. It was clear that the brutal concessionary system would have to be dismantled. However, by late August, Braza's health would take a turn for the worse. 
It was so bad he would even have to be carried on a litter. In September, the commission boarded a ship and headed back to Europe. However, Braza knew that he would not make it. He worked with his team and came up with the basic recommendations for the commission. Dismantle the concessionary system, provide honesty and justice to the colony, invest in humane and fair ways for the native peoples to be productive. Braza would then write out commendations for all 14 of his men and recommend them for promotions and honors. He then begged them to save his Congo. With his life slipping away, Braza was brought to a hospital in Senegal to try and save him, but it would be too late. He would die on September 14, 1905. He was 53 years old. The cause of death was labeled as dysentery. News of Braza's death would quickly spread throughout Europe and Africa. Braza's body would be brought back to France, where he would be given a state funeral in Paris on October 3rd. Thousands would turn out, including politicians, colleagues, friends, and even enemies. They called Braza a hero to France, a brave explorer, and a humanitarian. He was compared to the greats of the era, including Livingston and Stanley, and hailed as France's greatest explorer. Charles de Chavon gave a moving eulogy to his friend. He spoke of Braza's love for Africa, his respect for humanity, and his decency and dignity. So after the funeral, the French government sent out to stifle the report that Braza and his team had put together. They dissolved the Braza mission and replaced it with a new one, headed by men who would report only what the government wanted to report. However, the French National Assembly would ultimately vote to have the full Braza report published. In the end, it was put together and it implicated all sorts of people, including church leaders in the Congo, government officials in Africa and in France, and countless others. As Braza had instructed, the chief recommendation called for the dismantling of the concessionary system. The French government would print ten copies of the report and immediately label them as state secrets and shuffle them off to the archives for no one to see, where they remain to this day. Also, the government would declare amnesty for all crimes committed in the French Congo. And with that, Braza's final work, which cost him his life, was negated. Of course, many of the details of these reports would be leaked, and the government would be on the defensive for a long time. However, it would not be enough to halt the concessionary system, which remained in place in the French Congo until 1930. Now, a few things about Braza before we go into a wrap-up about him and this series. First, Braza's wife, Therese, always believed her husband did not die of dysentery, but was poisoned. She claimed that there were too many powerful people threatened by her husband's report, and they murdered him to save themselves. There is no proof of this accusation, but let's face it, there were a lot of really bad people involved in this part of our story. Killing Braza would not have been above them. Sadly, we will likely never know the truth. Second thing, Braza's body would be moved from Paris to Algiers a few years after his death. Braza had loved Algiers, and it was his desire to be buried in Africa. It wasn't Central Africa, but still Africa, and it was still a place he cared for. The epitaph at his gravesite read, quote, A memory untainted by human blood, end quote. The Braza home in Algiers would be turned into a museum. It opened in 1952, and the first curator was Braza's son, Charles. Now, despite his death, the journey of Braza was not over. This is because in 2006, Braza's body would be exhumed, along with those of his wife and children, and taken to Brazzaville, where they were reinterred into the new Braza Mausoleum at the National Museum of the Congo. The beautiful dome-shaped mausoleum had been built specially to honor the father of slaves, who was recognized as one of the founding fathers of the Republic of the Congo. It was, honestly, an incredible honor. The opening ceremony was attended by three African presidents and the French foreign minister. Braza was hailed for his humanitarian work against slavery and the abuse of the African people. However, the Braza mausoleum is not without controversy. The $10 million price tag drew criticism, 
but more than that, it was the honoring of a French explorer who contributed to the colonization of the Congo that drew the ire of some. Many were wondering why a Frenchman was being bestowed with such honors instead of an African hero. They said Braza, despite his good intentions, was still a colonizer, and they claimed that the nod to Braza was more an appeal to French business interests, who still, to this day, have a significant financial stake in the Congo Republic. And to be honest, there's probably a bit of truth to it all. It is disappointing that Braza and his family have been dragged into the controversy. No matter the truth, the mausoleum is not just a tomb for Braza and his family. It is a museum and a teaching center, one that, hopefully, will be a place of truth and knowledge for years to come. Maybe a $10 million museum was overkill for Braza, but that he and his family have been laid to rest there, I think is fitting. He had been drawn time and time again to the Congo during his life, and he had died trying to aid the land and its people. That pretty much wraps up the life of Pierre Savignon de Braza. I think it is a pretty fascinating tale. I want to finish up with two things. First, I want to give a brief rundown on some of the people and places and institutions we have discussed in this series. And second, I'll do a look at the legacy of Braza. So to start, let's do a rundown of our people. First, we have Dr. Noel Ballet. The capable and respected ballet had worked for Braza for more than a decade before the two had had a falling out. Ballet would later become the first governor of French Guinea and ultimately the governor general of French West Africa. He would die in 1902 in Senegal at the age of 54, likely of yellow fever. Second on our list is Malamine Kamara, the Senegalese soldier who was so important to the success of Braza's second mission. Well, Malamine would return to Senegal after becoming ill in 1885. However, before he left, he would be awarded the Military Medal, which is among France's highest honors given to non-citizens in its armed forces. Malamine would die a year later in Senegal, the exact cause unknown, but possibly related to the bladder infection he had suffered in the Congo. Sadly, he would die poor, the French government not approving his pension until after his death. The third man on our list is Charles de Chavon. Chavon had been Braza's closest and most trusted advisor and friend. He had been his best man at his wedding and had spoken kindly of Braza at his funeral. He would retire from colonial service and go on to write no less than eight books about his time in Africa and with Braza. He died in 1940 at the age of 86. The fourth person I want to mention is Makoko, the Bateki king who had been instrumental in Braza's success. I did not find out much about Makoko's life after Braza returned to Europe. However, I did find out that he and his people would remain under the protection of the French government, and that, to this day, his descendants remain important chiefs in the region. Our next person is Braza's wife, Therese. She had been an important part of his life, a strong-willed and modern woman who had not been just a spouse, but a partner. As far as I can tell, she stayed in Algiers after her husband's death, along with her three surviving children. Records of this kind of stuff can be a bit sketchy, and it doesn't help that many aren't French, which I cannot read, but it does not appear as if any of the Braza children would have offspring of their own. As noted, the bodies of Braza, Therese, and their four children now rest in the Braza Mausoleum in Brazzaville. So that's some of the good guys, but what about the bad guys, or at least the not-so-good guys? Well, first, there was the famed explorer Henry Morton Stanley. Please know that Stanley will be a subject for this podcast at some point in the future. Otherwise, know that Stanley is a complicated figure with a really mixed reputation, which I really don't want to debate here. Instead, I will just note that he had one final expedition of exploration in Africa in 1886 before returning to Europe. He would get married, get involved in politics in England, and eventually be knighted. He would die in 1904 at the age of 63 from pneumonia. Today, he is considered one of the great explorers of Africa. 
Now, the last person I want to mention is a man who hovers so prominently over our story, but never actually set foot in Africa, and that is King Leopold II of Belgium. Well, Leopold would die in 1909 at the age of 74, but his legacy is a stain on the continent of Africa. His policies, as we discussed earlier, would lead to the deaths of roughly 10 million people. In fact, the atrocities and abuses going on in the Congo were so embarrassing to the Belgian government, Leopold would be forced to hand over the colony to Belgium in 1908, turning the Congo Free State into the Belgian Congo. The Belgian Congo would finally be granted independence in 1960, and the capital city, Leopoldville, would have its name changed to Kinshasa. However, we are not done with Leopold just yet, because he has recently been in the news, and that is because of the anti-racism movement that emerged around the globe in early 2020. With that, people started to look at all these statues of Leopold, and there are lots and lots of them all over Belgium, and say, really? This guy is our legacy? In the end, some of these statues were vandalized, and a few were taken down to prevent their destruction. With the spotlight turned on Leopold in the Congo, the Belgian government agreed to set up a commission to examine its country's colonial past, and King Philippe released a statement expressing his deepest regret for the violence and cruelty committed in the Congo during colonization. Where it all goes from here, who knows? But aside from Hernan Cortez, I can't think of anyone in all of my podcasts that I have disliked more than King Leopold II. And perhaps that's not fair. I'm sure there are lots and lots of other heartless and evil monarchs in my stories, but knowing how recently and how horribly his policies and greed affected this world, well, it just makes me really hate the guy. By the way, the current king of Belgium, Philippe, is a direct descendant of Leopold. So that is enough about all the other people in our story. Let's finish with a little bit about Pierre Savignon de Braza. As an explorer, his accomplishments are somewhat limited. His work along the Ogilwe River in the area of Central Africa was great, but it wasn't that sexy or significant. The fact that Braza is mostly forgotten when it comes to the pantheon of explorers is evidence of that. When thinking about African explorers, Stanley and Livingston, Burton and Speak come to mind. Braza falls in that next tier, which is okay, because one of the things about Braza was not so much what he did, but how he did it. Henry Wharton Stanley marched and shot his way across Africa, found Dr. David Livingston, mapped the Congo, etc., etc. And in doing so, he sold a lot of books and newspapers. It made him rich and famous. But that wasn't Braza, and it makes him unique. I do not doubt that he enjoyed the fame and adulation, but his journeys and goals had been so much different when compared to men such as Stanley. The truth is, Braza truly loved the adventure of exploration, the discovery of places and people and cultures and experiences. In the end, I liked Braza. He seemed like a good and decent person who loved people and loved Africa. He believed in what he was doing and respected the people and the cultures he encountered. He had a vision of a colonial partnership of bringing enlightenment and knowledge to the people of Africa, and everyone benefiting from such a relationship. That's admirable. However, I think the tragedy of Braza's work is that he fought so hard to achieve a peaceful and cooperative relationship with the African people, yet what he did was so swiftly and easily corrupted by others for economic and political gains. In fact, you can argue that what Braza did actually hurt the native people, who were led into a relationship that turned abusive and deadly once Braza exited the stage. In some ways, it was naive of him to believe that such a thing wouldn't happen, and that is tragic for everyone. Still, despite the terrible outcome, Braza's work in Africa was unique and admirable. He did have good intentions, and he risked his life again and again to back up his values. To me, that is pretty amazing. Now, I do want to stress that Braza was no saint. He was seen as manipulative, even deceitful by some, 
and he was not above using force if he needed to. And his shortcomings as an administrator caused their own set of problems. But in the end, I have to say that he was an impressive man. My last comment about Brazza rests with the city that bears his name, Brazzaville. In the wake of Africa throwing off colonial yokes, many places reclaim their native names and history. Leopoldville is now Kinshasa. Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe. The Gold Coast is Ghana. That sort of thing. But Brazzaville remains to this day exactly that. Brazzaville, the city of Brazza. And who knows, perhaps someday the name will be reclaimed by the African people. But for now, it is a testament to the respect that many have for the man who was called the peaceful conqueror and the father of slaves. That is not a bad legacy. So that is it, the life of Italian-French explorer Pierre Savignon de Brazza. I hope you've enjoyed this tale. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.